We were marched to the station where a convoy of cattle wagons was waiting. The Hungarian police forced us to get in. 80 people in each car. We were left with a few loaves of bread and some buckets of water. And the bars at the window were checked to see that they were not loose. And then the cars were sealed. In each car, one person was placed in charge. If anyone escaped, he would be shot. A prolonged whistle split the air. The wheels began to grind. And we were on our way. After two days of traveling, we began to be tortured by thirst. Then the heat became unbearable. We looked at the flames and the darkness. There was an abominable odor floating in the air. Suddenly, the doors were opened. Some odd-looking characters dressed in striped shirts and black trousers jumped into the wagon. They held electric torches and truncheons. And they began to strike out to the right and the left, screaming, everybody out, everybody out, quickly. In front of us, flames. In the air, that, that smell of burning flesh. It must have been about midnight. We had arrived at Birkenau, the reception center for Auschwitz. So writes the Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. I think you would agree with me this morning that sin casts a, a dark shadow over our culture. And the sin, the curse of sin, presses in to each and every one of our lives. There is simply no escaping the brutal reality of sin. The horrors of Auschwitz put on display before us this morning help to serve us and remind us that the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things, according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. And the Bible tells us in very clear and vivid terms that sin is a part of the, the warp and woof of life. The Bible tells us this, that sin is real. Sin is real. Psalm chapter 14, verse 3. The Bible says, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Bible tells us, and it reminds us of the perverse nature of sin. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 4. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a, a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The Bible effect reminds us about the enslaving effects of sin. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, is a slave to sin. The Bible reminds us that each and every one of us has been born into sin. The psalmist declares, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Moreover, the Bible reminds us of the the debilitating effects of sin. In Romans chapter 8, we'll be there in about three years. Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The Bible reminds us of the horrific effects of sin in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that's exactly what we have seen over the last several weeks in Romans chapter 1, where the creature has, in a very subverse way, acted out his or her sin against the Creator. He or she has committed cosmic treason against the very Creator of the universe. The Bible reminds us about the comprehensiveness of sin. You see, no one here is excluded. Some of you I know very well. Some of, some of you have shared some of your, your deepest secrets with me as your pastor. Others of you I've never met. Some of you might be here for the, the very first time, and I, I have never had a chance to shake your hand. So whether I know you or don't know you, this is one thing that we can go to the bank with. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Bible also reminds us about the penalty of sin. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is just a a thumbnail sketch of the, the portrait of sin that we see revealed in sacred scripture. Sin is woven, you see, throughout the pages of Scripture and also is embroidered into the very fabric of our lives. Yet here is something that sometimes surprises me. Perhaps it should not surprise me, but it is true nonetheless that people all around the world, people even in this congregation, people in our community, continue to deny personal sin in their lives. Other people may take it one step further. They don't deny sin. They actually acknowledge sin, but they refuse to deal with it. They refuse to deal with it, or they acknowledge sin and they hide it. I want to have you turn with me, and I wasn't going to do this until later, but it just seems appropriate now to have you look with me at Psalm chapter 32. And there's a A very, very important section here in Psalm chapter 32. And this is the section of scripture where King David, King David had been trapped in sin. In his case, it was sexual sin. I want to read these verses with you and make a few observations. Psalm chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then in verse 3. David makes an acknowledgement. And it's an acknowledgement that 
would be very easy to slip past. It would be very easy to, to fail to see what is in view here. He says this, for when I kept silent, stop there. This is not to suggest that David is an introvert. This is not to suggest that David has a, a quiet personality. This is not to suggest that he was not a loud mouth. What this suggests, and I would encourage you to write this in your Bible, as I have in mine, is for when I kept silent, and then above that, I'd encourage you to write about my sin. When I kept silent about my sin, when I refused to confess my sin, when I refused to acknowledge my sin, when I took my sin underground. Because we all know when David committed the sin with Bathsheba, what's the first thing he did? First, he set up Uriah the Hittite and committed murder. Now he has two sins on his hands. There's blood on King David's hands. But then he takes it underground. And he... He, for a season, he was not willing to confess it. Notice the result, and it's a brutal result. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. My friend, my dear friend, Bob Reese, who is now with the Lord. When I say dear friend, I remember as a child, vividly, it's one of my most vivid memories growing up in church. Bob Reese was one of the elders. And so I, I'm just going to guess and say I'm, I'm nine years old. And at that time, Bob Reese was likely in his mid-50s or early 60s. And he would get up and, and pray. He would utter what we used to call a, a pastoral prayer. And I remember being struck with, with how godly Mr. Reese was. And I remember also being struck with how long his prayers were. In fact, as, a, as an eight or nine-year-old, I, I can remember, and I don't know if I should confess this to you or not, I remember timing his prayers. <laughs> and I thought to myself, my word, the guy prayed for 12 minutes? This is incredible. Now, we live in an age when some preachers don't preach for 12 minutes, right? Mr. Reese would pray for 12 minutes. So I grew up in that church, and I went to Multnomah University, and then I went off to to seminary and finish my doctoral work. And, and in the course of that time, I would come back and I would see Mr. Reese. And he would take me to, to lunch from time to time. And I always wondered why this old guy was so kind to a, a young Bible college student. And I, I just didn't know the answer. Looking back, I just realized he wanted to show his kindness to me. His generosity to me, he always paid the bill. And he just wanted to reach out to me and maybe teach me a few lessons. Here's one of the lessons that Mr. Reese taught me. If you look at Psalm chapter 32, when David said, when I kept silent about the sin of my life, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Mr. Reese used to say, that's what it means to have a bone ache. And I'll never forget that. When when we have sin in our lives and we follow the example of King David and we take it underground, I, I want to make a guarantee. And I'm not a physician and I'm not a psychologist. But I will guarantee you that if you have sin in your life and you take it underground, it will affect you spiritually. 
There will be a breach between you and a holy God. It will affect you emotionally. And here's the one that might shock you. It will affect you physically. And David says that. He says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That is, God's hand was heavy upon him. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And so I hope I've painted this picture for you that unconfessed sin is never a good thing. It affects you first and foremost spiritually. It affects you emotionally. It affects you psychologically. It affects you physically. If you're here this morning, you have unconfessed sin in your life, and you just can't figure out where your energy's gone, my first suspicion would be is you need to confess your sin to God. And then strength and vitality can come back because look at verse 5. When he finally comes to his senses, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, that is God, and I did not go underground. That's the Dave Steele revised translation, right? I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. And I hope you see the beauty of the next line. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And so the issue I want to explore with you is that some people refuse to believe in the doctrine of sin. Other people assent to the doctrine of sin. They even have a robust theology of sin, but they deny it or they they hide it, or they take it underground like David. Other people recognize the seriousness of sin, but instead of of taking it to the cross of Jesus, they they try to do what you might refer to as self-atonement. They try to forgive themselves. I want to say something and, and really give you a warning. It's something I have not talked nearly enough about, and I I read this in books, and I have people tell me this all the time. There was a season of my life where I used to let it slide, and if, if, if this is ever said, at least around me, and hopefully now around you, if you hear the phrase, I'm just learning to forgive myself, I want you to think about that phrase. It's a popular phrase. I'm just, God's forgiven me. Now I'm trying to, I'm learning how to forgive myself. Now, in the context of Psalm 32 and the concept of this discussion, can you see how foolish that is? That I have the power and the inclination and the ability to make atonement for my sin. I'm going to forgive myself. You say, you don't understand. It's just an emotional thing. No, it's a theological thing. No one has the ability to forgive themselves. So we should never speak in those categories. There's, there's one person who is qualified to forgive. It's the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands in as our defense attorney, First John says, and he, he pleads the case of Dave Steele to the Father. And you know what's beauty about my defense attorney and your defense attorney? He always works pro bono. His work is free. You don't have to pay an attorney's fee. The Lord Jesus pleads your case before the Father. And we're going to see what happens 
in that case in your life. And so this morning, I want to bring a special message to you. It's a message that is designed for, for me because I need to hear it. I need to preach this. But it's also a message that is designed for each one of you. And I want to speak in these terms. This is a message for every elder at Christ Fellowship. This is also a message for every deacon at Christ Fellowship. And this is also a message for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every member, every non-member, every first-time guest, every Christian, every non-Christian. There, there is no one excluded in this message today. It has equal importance for all of us. And so I want you to wrestle with some important questions. The primary question I want you to wrestle, wrestle with is this, is what is your response to sin? What's your response to sin? Do you admit it or do you deny it? Do you hide it for a season like King David? Or here's something else we haven't looked at. Do you hurl it? I can't tell you how many times in my life as a pastor and even before I was a pastor, I have had people trapped in sin failing to repent, who wag their finger in my face and blame it on me. I think I shared this with you last week. The last time it happened, I thought my wife was going to, I mean, I I thought she was going to go into jujitsu mode. I mean, I, I I thought this guy's head was coming off. You blamed what on my husband? Right? But that is something that uh, it's taken a long time for me to learn. I think I'm a slow learner that when someone is trapped in sin and they refuse to confess and repent of that sin, more often than not, just like Adam who blamed his wife. You remember, I don't know if you have the translation that I do. Adam said something like this to God. It was that chick that you put in the garden. He hurls his sin. It doesn't end there. Eve says, it was the snake's fault. It's that snake. He, he's a nasty little snake. So we as, as fallen people have this propensity to, to pass the buck and blame it on others. I want to remind you this morning that each of us is playing on a level playing field. Or another analogy is we're all in the same boat. We're all in this boat of sin, right? And we're... If you're a Christian, you're on your way to the celestial city. But if you're a Christian, you also will struggle with sin until the day you die. Sins of the mind and emotion, sins like fear or anger or envy or greed or lack of contentment. It probably wouldn't be inappropriate for me to confess my sin of fear this morning during the worship service. This is a message I'm a little afraid to preach. And so I have to overcome that fear by trusting in the spirit of God who resides within me. There are sins of the flesh, sins that involve pornography, sins that involve sexual sin. Other sins of the flesh, there are moral sins like stealing and drunkenness and whatnot. Whatever the sin, the passage that we will study this morning directly confronts it. It directly confronts it. I want to have you look at a slide with me this morning to give you an overview of where we're going. 
And in that slide, you'll see that it is, it is addressed to two kinds of people. One, it will address the deceived. If you're here this morning and you're, you have been sucked into believing an erroneous view of sin or even reject the view of sin, this message will come across like a hammer to you. You will feel like you're getting pounded into the ground until you repent. My suspicion is very few of you fall into that category. For the rest of you, this is designed to reach out to the downcast. If you're downcast in any way, shape, or form, my design, I believe this passage's design is to comfort you. And so the title of the message, as you've seen in your bulletin, is The Sinner's Creed. The Sinner's Creed. And I want to have you turn with me to 1 John. And if you have not figured it out by this point, we are going to take a detour from the book of Romans and spend some time in the book of First John. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we read verses 5 to 10? God's word says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would uh, strengthen me today as I I believe this is a message that you have called me to preach, that the people in this uh, auditorium need to hear. I pray for those who are deceived, that they would receive admonishment this morning. And that by the end of our time together, that they would stand among the repentant and that you would lead them in the path of the celestial city. For those who were downcast, I think that would include many, if not most. I pray that each of those uh, men and women, boys and girls would receive comfort and reassurance from the word of God in Jesus name. Amen. One of the things that we are going to see together in this passage is that people respond in different ways to sin. In these introductory comments that I've made, I hope you've seen that so far. And I want to put it in these terms, a a creative way for you to remember. I believe what we see in verses 5 to 10 is that every person, and this is Christian and non-Christian alike, every person has what I'd like to refer, refer to as a sinner's creed. A sinner's creed. Every person carries around a set of assumptions about their sin or if they don't believe in total depravity, their repudiation of sin. And so the big question before us is, what is the sinner's creed that the scripture affirms? We're going to look at a few sinner's creeds, only one of them the word of God affirms. First, I want to have you focus with me in the early verses in 1 John, verses 1 to 4. We're not going to read those verses, but I want to 
direct your attention there and have you see that the Apostle John now, we've talked a lot about the Apostle Paul in Romans, now we shift to John. In verses 1 to 4, this godly apostle is Godward, Godward, Godward. He encourages his readers by focusing their attention and my attention and your attention on the fellowship that we enjoy with God the Father through his Son. And then I want to have you look at verse 4, and this is just to help you with the context. He utters these astounding words. Verse 4, And we, that is John, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. My suspicion is, if you're here this morning, you are looking for your joy to be complete. John says that is possible in the Christian life. And he continues in verse 5 by anchoring his thoughts with these very important words. Look at verse 5 and we'll see this on the screen. He says, and this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In light of that fact, I want to ask, how will you deal with your sin in light of what God says in this particular text about the character of God? And here, here's how we're going to do this. I want to give you two main headings. And the first heading we will entitle the character of God. This will pour the, the foundation for us so that we can understand and benefit from the rest of the message. The character of God. And then we'll turn to the creed of the creature. And we're going to unpack several creeds that we see here in this passage. First, the character of God. And I want you to mark this well in your mind and also in your Bible. Don't dare miss this truth. We must resist the urge to, to pass by the magnitude of this message. You must hear it. You must understand it. You must wrestle with it. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, you must embrace it. And that is this. This is the message. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. What is the meaning then of John's assertion? Within verse 5, we have this, this magnanimous piece of theology about our God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What is on John's mind? There are three things I want you to see. First, it means that God is majestic. And I fear that we have either forgotten this in many churches or we have begun to deny it altogether. Psalm chapter 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Listen to what Moses says. Moses understood the majesty of God, did he not? You remember when Moses stood before the burning bush and he heard these words, Moses, take off your Nikes, right? Take off your sandals. Why? Because you're standing on holy ground. How much time do you think elapsed between that imperative and when Moses took his sandals off? I'll guarantee you this. Moses didn't say, well, let me go get some chips and dip first. 
Immediately, Moses takes off his sandals as he stands in the presence of a holy God. He says in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Little G-O-D-S. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? As I reviewed these next words, I, I really got to thinking. I, I think I've quoted this sentence probably more than any other thing I've quoted from this pulpit in seven and a half years. It's a quote from not John Piper. I know the one you're thinking about. God is most glorified in us. And we're most satisfied in him. That's probably number two. But the quote that I've probably uttered more than any other quote comes from a book that was written in the 16th century. The first edition was penned in 1536 by John Calvin. It became the number one selling book in France. Now most believers have no idea what it is. It's an absolutely phenomenal piece of writing. By a man who was in his late 20s, newly converted to the Christian faith when he wrote his first edition. Here's what he says. Calvin says, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. The majesty of God. What John means when he says that God is light and in, in him there is no darkness at all is that our God is majestic. Secondly, he means that God is transcendent. That is, he is over and above the scope of the universe. What we have done in the church is many people don't like the doctrine of transcendence. They don't like this big, mammoth, holy, awesome God. And so what have they done? They have, they have minimized or rejected transcendence outright, and they have focused our attention to the God who is imminent. This is what the liberal theologians did and continue to do. And we believe in the imminence of God, that God is with us, and that he loves us, and that he cares for his people. But that is not the complete picture. God is also transcendent. He is high and lifted up. The Bible says that he inhabits eternity, that his name is holy, that he dwells in a high and holy place, but he's also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Some of you remember my friend Frank. Remember Frank and Sandy? We used to play this game all the time. I need someone to kind of since they, they moved away, I need someone to kind of play this game with me. Here's the question. Is God transcendent or imminent? Yes. Thank you. Jason jumps in. It's not that he's one or the other. It's not that he's one or the other. He is both transcendent and imminent. There's a third thing that I believe John would have us to focus on here when we learn that God is light. And that is that he is holy. I won't read the passage in Isaiah chapter 6, but you remember when Isaiah comes face to face with the holiness of God. He sees this uh, uh, amazing pre-incarnate visit from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The late R.C. Sproul says this in his book and the name of the book is The Holiness of God. It's a book that was published in 1985, and, and I, I am convinced it will be published on the day I die and, Lord willing, a hundred years after I'm dead because it is one of the most important books of our generation. Here's what Dr. Sproul said. The primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut, to separate, 
And it points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. And then Sproul says, he is an infinite cut above everything else. And so since this is who God is portrayed in scripture, because he's holy, God has a holy hatred of sin. Thomas Watson says God's holiness consists in his perfect love of righteousness and his abhorrence of evil. And so John says in him is no darkness at all. Since God is holy, then he is the final standard of holiness. He has the authority to require the creatures, that's you and I, to obey. And so God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is majestic. He is transcendent. He is holy. That leads us back to the question, how will you deal with your sin in the presence of this majestic, transcendent, and holy God? The Apostle John shows us how different kinds of people respond to this God. So turn your attention now from the character of man to the creed of the creature. As I said earlier, every person, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every believer, every non-believer has a sinner's creed. Each of us are sinners this morning. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what kind of education you have or want to have. It doesn't matter where you sit on the so-called social strata. Each one of us are sinners. But here is what emerges in this passage. There are two kinds of sinners. There are sinners who walk in the dark. And there are sinners who walk in the light. I want you to see the response of a majestic, transcendent, holy God to these two approaches. The sinners who walk in the dark and the sinners who walk in the light. The first is found in verse 6. Verse 6 as we explain what it means to walk in the dark. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, that is to say, I am a Christian. I am walking in fellowship with God. While we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I would label this person in verse 6, the duplicitous. The duplicitous. That's exactly what verse 6 says. And here is the creed that you see on the board. The duplicitous person says, I can sin habitually and have a disregard for God and maintain fellowship with him. May I be so bold to say that if you find yourself in that category, that you are not a Christian. You say, I can't believe he just said that. If you believe that you can say, I'm a Christian, I go to church on Sundays, but you reject and repudiate the claims of Jesus' lordship on your life, you're just not a Christian. This is your creed. You have a disregard for God's authority, a disregard for God's law, a disregard for God's word. This person plays fast and loose with the attributes of God. Here's some examples. I can cheat on my taxes, that is, walk in the darkness and have fellowship with God. I can bow down to idols, that is, walk in darkness, but still maintain fellowship with God. I can have one foot in the world and one foot at Christ's fellowship and still have fellowship with God. I can hate my brother or walk in darkness and continue to have fellowship 
with God. Here is God's verdict for the duplicitous. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, you lie and you do not practice the truth. This is the the duplicitous person. In verse 8, we see a person that I would categorize as the deceived. The deceived. Read it with me. If we say we have no sin. You see, in verse 6, the the person we just explored or referred to as the duplicitous, this person acknowledges sin. He or she just believes she can, he can be in fellowship with God and continue to commit sin, but never confess it, never repent. The deceived is a very different proposition. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What's the creed of this person? This person says that sin has been erased sin has been eradicated from my life this person may believe in sin but embrace the idea that sin no longer affects them i read a book maybe 10 12 years ago by a very very well-known author who i don't recommend to anyone and he uttered these words the big lie in the church today is that you're nothing more than a sinner saved by grace yet men in particular read this guy Read book after book after book. Think about that statement. The big lie in the church is you're a sinner saved by grace. There's, there's a word for that I like to respond to. That's heresy. That, that is rank heresy. This is the reality. We are all sinners saved by grace if we're in Christ. And this is God's verdict for the deceived. God's verdict is if you believe that Sin has been eradicated from your life. The verdict is we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth is not in us. There's a third kind of a person walking in the dark in verse 10. John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this may be the worst creed of all. This person says this, that I have never sinned. I have never sinned. The verdict is we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want to show you a chart on the screen and just have you meditate on it just for a second. We've looked at the duplicitous, so we've looked at the deceived, we've looked at the deluded. Each one has a sinner's creed, but each one of these individuals, while different in their worldviews and their belief towards the doctrine of sin and depravity, they all have something in common. Do you see what it is? It's an utter disregard for the truth. An utter disregard for the truth. My hope is that you are not walking in the darkness. If you are walking in the darkness in a moment, we'll give some very important responses from the word of God. But before we get there, look at the other kind of a person. We're going to shift from super negative to super positive. I want to move and look from the creed of the creature From those who walk in the the darkness to those who walk in the light. And the person who walks in the light is what I would call the devoted. The devoted. Look at verse 7. John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. We learn that in verse 5. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Here is the beautiful creed. You see it on the screen. I will walk in the light as he is in the light, confessing my sin and resting in my Savior who forgives me. You see, the devoted person is not a perfect person. The devoted person is a person who acknowledges his or her sin, who confesses his or her sin, is on his or her way to the celestial city, and there will be bumps along the way. There will be bruising along the way where when you sin, you confess it, and you get right with God, and you get right with your brothers and your sisters. The person who is the devoted one here affirms the character of God. This person admits that he or she is a sinner. This person admits that he or she sins. This person has the courage and the humility to confess sin. This person stands with John Newton, who said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And I want you to see the verdict of God here. The verdict of God begins in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The first aspect of the verdict is for those who confess their sin, that means that you can have harmony with your brothers and sisters. That means that that there are no... There are no secrets anymore. That means that that we can live in complete harmony with one another. You live in peace with your brothers and sisters, what John calls fellowship with one another. But that's on the horizontal level. Guess what's on the vertical level? When you and I confess our sins, we're not only right with people horizontally, we're right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what 1 John teaches. We have peace with people and we have peace with with God, and here is the best part. We are forgiven of all our sin. I want to provide you with a few references that are definitely worth writing down. We won't turn there, but as you struggle, let's do this. I'll be the first. How many struggle with sin? And those of you that don't have your your hands raised, we're going out back afterwards, right? I'm just kidding. You've got to get real. We all struggle with sin. If you struggle with sin, know this, that when you confess your sin, that God, based on his character and on his word, not only will forgive your sin, he must forgive your sin. Right? So here's the verse I want to set forth before you. Several verses. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12. For as far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Why east and west, not north and south? East and west, it's infinite. You just keep going and going and going. That's what God does to every person who confesses his or her sins. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sin behind your back. Micah seven nineteen. he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depth of the sea. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. For those of you that raise your hands, all of you, Know this, when you confess your sin, you know that God separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the deepest ocean imaginable. He hides his sin behind your back and he forgets your sin. 
There's an example of the president of Uganda. And I almost made a horrible mistake this morning because I was going to say the former president of Uganda. And as I double checked, he's not the former president. He is the president. He's serving in his fifth term. This is not the United States. It's another government with a totally different constitution. But the president of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni, celebrated several years ago Uganda's 50th anniversary of independence from Britain at the National Jubilee Prayers event by publicly repenting, publicly repenting of his personal sin and the sins of the nation. So the president of Uganda is an evangelical Christian. Does that surprise you? Hear his words, and I think you'll be encouraged. He says, I stand here today to close the evil past, and especially in the last 50 years of our national leadership history, and at the threshold of a new dispensation in the life of this nation. I stand here on my own behalf, and on behalf of my predecessors, predecessors to repent. We ask your forgiveness, the president prayed. We confess these sins, which have greatly hampered our national cohesion and delayed our political, social, and economic transformation. We confess, listen to this, we confess sins of idolatry and witchcraft, which are rampant in our land. We confess sins of shedding innocent blood, sins of political hypocrisy, dishonesty, intrigue, and betrayal. Forgive us of sins of pride, tribalism, sectarianism, sins of laziness, indifference, and irresponsibility, sins of corruption and bribery that have eroded our national resources, sins of sexual immorality, drunkenness, debauchery, sins of unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, and revenge, sins of injustice, oppression, exploitation, sins of rebellion, insubordination, strife, and conflict, he prayed. There's a guy I want to get to know. There's a humble man, a contrite man who trembles at God's word. And what does the president of Uganda do? He rests in the character of God who is light and in him there is no darkness. He rests in the God who is faithful and just to forgive his sins and the sins of every person in Uganda that chooses to repent. He believes in a covenant-keeping God. Here's how I want to close this morning. I want to challenge you if, if you are walking in darkness. If you are walking in darkness, I want to challenge you to do five things this morning. And these all hang together. Number one, if you're walking in darkness, I want to challenge you to acknowledge your hypocrisy. I want to challenge you to admit your sin. I want to challenge you to accept responsibility for your sin. Moreover, I want to encourage you and challenge you to abandon your sin and ultimately to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of all your sin. And when you acknowledge your sin and confess your hypocrisy and accept your responsibility for your sin and abandon your sin, what happens? God separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the sea of forgetfulness. He hides it behind his back. And yes, the God who knows all things says, I forget your sin. Not only do I forgive you, but I forget your sin. So when you confess something, 
For some reason, I'm looking at you, Norm. I said, so Norm goes to God and says, God, I commit the, the, the sin of X, Y, Z. And next week, Norm, you start to feel guilty about that sin. And you go back to God and say, God, you remember when I committed the sin of X, Y, Z and I confessed it to you? God says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Isn't that amazing? Is the God who is omniscient, the God who has comprehensive knowledge of all things in his cosmos that he created, he chooses to forgive your sin and forget your sin. For those of you who are walking in the light, and may I say that if you're walking in the light, I think you'd freely admit you're not doing so perfectly. I know I'm not doing so perfectly, and we, we stumble along the way. It's just that we're walking in the light, and we still stumble. Even though the path is bright. If you're walking in the light, may I encourage you to keep confessing your sin. Men, confess your sin to your wives. Wives, confess your sin to your husband. Mom and dad, confess your sin to your children. Children, confess your sin to your parents. Confess your sin with the people that you have sinned against. Number two, keep short accounts with God. Don't be like David in Psalm chapter 32 who had a bone ache. When you commit a sin, take it to the cross. Keep short accounts with God. Number three, keep close with other believers who are walking in the light. Keep close with other believers who are walking in the light. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, says this, Nothing has a greater power and energy to affect holiness than the communion of the saints. And this is one reason why we're calling for 100% participation in the women's class and the men's class. Because if you're not involved in these accountable relationships, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start to veer towards the darkness. Number four, keep trusting the promises of God. Keep trusting the promises of God. And number four, keep, keep trusting the promises of God. There's an implication there. There's an understanding that you know the promises of God. And so if you don't know the promises of God... Get familiar with the promises of God and then trust them every day. And number five, keep close to the cross. When you wander from the cross, here's what happens. You begin to compromise with sin, and we've all done it. When you wander from the cross, you begin to doubt the promises of God. Those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, it's my favorite, well, outside of the cross scene, that's the greatest scene in Pilgrim's Progress. The next best, at least in my mind, is when Pilgrim, gets locked in doubter's castle he's in doubter's castle and the giant is just gonna probably eat him for for dinner one night right and pilgrims the christian's scared to death he doesn't know what to do and so he waits and waits and he ponders and his heart is filled with anxiety and fear like some of us and he opens the this portion of his jacket and he looks in and he realizes there's a key and what is the key? It's symbolic of the promises of God. And guess what happens when he uses that key in the door? He opens the door. And I can just imagine this scene in John Bunyan, the author, in his mind's eye. I mean, it's, it's Christian, i.e. Forrest Gump. Right? He's running away from the hideous giant. Why? Because he banked on the promises of God. When you wander from the cross, the lure of the world, the flesh, and the devil become more attractive. And so sin casts a dark shadow over our culture. And the curse of sin presses into our daily lives. And really, there's, there's no escaping the grim reality of sin. 
There's no escaping the wonderful reality of grace, however, for everyone who believes. So here's the sinner's creed. We've seen it once. I want to show it to you again. We've looked at four, and only one of them is valid. Three of them are false. The sinner's creed that the scripture embraces is that I will walk in the light as he is in the light, confessing my sin daily and resting in my Savior who forgives all of my sin. Some of you are walking in the light. Some of you are walking in the darkness. Some of you are flirting with the darkness. One of my friends, and I say this specifically, one of my friends, a man who I never had the opportunity to meet, he was a Welshman, just like me. His name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He died when I was about 12 years old. Now you know why I never met my friend, but he is considered my friend because he's had a weighty, weighty influence in my life. He has influenced me in some amazing ways. He went to be with the Lord back in the 80s on March the 1st, 1981, I believe. And to tell you a bit about Martin Lloyd-Jones, it would be it would be an accurate statement to say that he was most likely the most influential preacher of our generation. You think about the 20th century. This guy, the doctor they called him, the last of the Puritans, was a mighty man of God. This man would preach sermon after sermon after sermon. If my memory is correct, I believe it took him 11 years to get through the book of Romans. We'll be close to that, but not quite 11 years. When he was on his deathbed, I want you to imagine this is a guy, the most influential preacher in the last hundred years, who is laying on his deathbed. And he had a friend come to visit him. And the doctor pulled his friend in really close. And he struggled to say these words. He said to his friend, I want to tell you something. And I don't want you to ever forget it. He said, I am only a forgiven sinner. There's nothing more to me than that. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's just a forgiven sinner. I want to ask you this morning, are you a forgiven sinner? Or are you just a sinner headed for hell? My heart's cry is that every person that walks out of the sanctuary today would be numbered among the forgiven sinners. And the way you evaluate that is by asking, what is your sinner's creed? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who God the Father sent to to live a perfect life on this earth and die on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe? Has the gospel gripped your heart? Not religion. Not church, not Sunday school, not Christianity 101, but has the gospel gripped your heart? Has the gospel gripped your life? And my challenge to you today is that each of us, that we would be walking in the light as he is in the light, confessing our sins daily and resting on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives us of our every sins. Let's pray together. Father, what appears in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, appears to be 
some very basic truth and very basic reality, but on further inspection, these are intense, meaningful words. And so may we feel the weight of these words for those who are walking in the darkness. I pray especially for them that they would see the weightiness of these words, that they would uh, run from their hypocrisy. And as they run from their hypocrisy, they'd run to the cross. When they get to the cross, they'd run into the arms of a kind and merciful and loving Savior. For those who are walking in the light, Lord, I pray that you would help them to keep on keeping on, to walk by the Spirit, to keep close each day to the cross, to confess their sins to one another, to confess their sins to you, knowing that if we confess our sins, that that you, God, are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, this is for everyone who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are visiting with us today and you are a believer in Jesus, we invite you to share in this with us as we remember together what Christ has done for us. Thank you.